Did Swedenborg have any dialogue with Jesus? Did the angels help us find and connect with our soulmate? Does Swedenborg mention suicide? Will we be able to see God when we pass God away? God is omniscient, and why would How he can someone even? gain heavenly reward? Is the afterlife more light if God is in the world? Why can Does Swedenborg tell us anything about our Is there any particular? Hey everybody, welcome to Swedenborg and Life. It's our 10 question show. This is where we get a panel of Swedenborg enthusiasts together and we take some time to answer the awesome questions you've all submitted throughout the uh, various forums, YouTube comments, etc. And today we're going to be looking at guardian angels, the, the meaning of the color blue, punishment, self-criticism. How does all this stuff fit within the larger spiritual existential framework as provided by Swedenborg? So I hope you enjoy and I'll see you at the end. Andrew asked, is poor work-life balance a form of evil? I find this a really interesting question because it has to do with wondering if the way we live our lives today here on earth has any implications for whether or not we are considered evil in the afterlife. And I'd like to caution by first saying it's probably not a good idea for us to spiritually judge another person, especially somebody that we know. We can civilly judge them and judge them whether or not they're breaking a law, such as stealing, but we really should not judge them spiritually. So what I'd like to do is talk about a number from Swedenborg's writings that comes from the book Marital Love. It's also called Conjuja Love, and I'm looking at number 18, and I'm going to read a little bit to you about the uses that people perform and how we can put them in sort of a hierarchy and prioritization. And I think this helps me get a a perspective that is very useful when looking at the question of work-life balance. So as I read in number 18, it says, to live for others is to do uses. Uses are the bonds of society, which are as numerous as good uses, and these are infinite in number. There are spiritual uses pertaining to love of God and love of the neighbor. There are moral and civil uses belonging to the love of society or the community in which a person lives, and to love for the companions in your society. There are natural uses pertaining to love of the world and all the necessities of life. And there are uses of the body belonging to the love of self-preservation in the interest of the higher uses. All these uses are inscribed on the human being and follow in order one after the other. When they occur together, one is within the other. Now, in my mind, this could be organized as four different levels in a hierarchy. The lowest level is the uses involved in taking care of our body, eating, sleeping, etc., to be healthy. The next level is taking care of our material possessions, our money in the bank, earning money, building a house, etc. The next level are the civil or moral uses, and that is how we get along with other people. And finally, at the top are the spiritual uses, which is our relationship to the Lord and the people closest to us that we love dearly. Now, if we are mindful of the top use and we are keeping that in mind while we're doing the lower uses, which are having to do with our role in society, our material objects, 
and taking care of our body. If we do this in service to love of the Lord and a way to give back to the people that we love, then we're being orderly. However, the writings do say that if we are only focused on the bottom two, we are not really wise people. And that would be an example of somebody who is probably not in good work-life balance. They're probably overemphasis on their own body, their own health, their own uh, looks. And then at the second level, they may be obsessed with money, acquisition of material objects, a biggest house on the block. So in summary, the whole question of whether or not somebody is evil if they don't have good work-life balance is something we can look at in the context of uses. If a person is overly emphasizing the love of themselves or the world and their worldly possession, over time, that can develop into a a less than positive love and one might say evil. But again, we can't always determine that in another person. We can look inside of ourselves. So Claudine asks, what is punishment as defined by Swedenborg? Now, Claudine, I think there are so many ways that we can take this uh, in exploration, but I thought I'd just share with you one concept of punishment that I think really is, um, it's reverberated for me and it's really uh, been something I've connected to. So I wanna begin to set up some context here by providing you a testimony from Paul. And he was one of the writers in the New Testament and he had this immense uh, opening up in this uh, struggle with sin that he had. So here we have Paul struggling with sin and really recording a lot of the, the battle that he had between wanting to be good and struggling with his weaker areas of life. And so as I read this, picture yourself where Paul is. Let whatever internal struggle you're having provide resonance to these words. So here we begin, this is Paul. So the trouble is not with the law for it is spiritual and good. And here Paul's talking about religious principles. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I'd love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Whoa, so that's super vulnerable. Uh, here we have this, this guy that's really responsible for spreading so much of Christianity outward after uh, the crucifixion. And here he's talking about this idea that I think so many of us resonate with, 
This idea that we have these weak areas of life and we struggle with them and we want to be better. There's this, there's this duality between that. And so one of the things I found in Swedenborg's writings that really made sense to me and reconciled what I'm reading with Paul here is this quote. Every evil carries with it a corresponding punishment, which is called the punishment of evil and is in the evil as if joined with it. So let's look back at that, that series of passages from Paul. He had uh, this, this idea of doing something wrong, but then the torment he felt about making that decision to do wrong because he knew it wasn't right. He knew he wanted to follow Christ, but there was that battle waging inside of himself. And that is actually, so this, this punishment of evil is packaged in with the evil doing itself. And I think, you know, we can look at, um, I mean, I'll give you uh, a personal example. I've, there's been times where I've struggled with, with lust or with anger. And when you, when you are in one of those acts, you know, say, say you experience anger and you, you, you use the wrong words in, in an outburst or something. Alongside that usually comes with this feeling of regret or remorse or guilt, or it, for me, worse, shame. And that is the punishment of evil. It's the actual sphere that you get into after you commit something wrong. And so that is just one idea of the punishment of evil that I think resonates with me. It might resonate with you. Um, punishment is something that I've, I've found a whole lot in Swedenborg's writings, but this really hit it home for me. So I hope that helps and I wish you well. Paladin One Warrior asks, why did Jewish men have to wear a blue piece of fabric? Um, and I think that this, there could be a couple of different things. The high priest has blue in his garments and it does have a similar meaning to what I'm going to talk about. But I, there's a specific number in, in numbers in the book of numbers that talks about that is actually a commandment that the, uh, the Israelites needed to wear this blue thread in their garments. Um, and this is the quote, I'm going to read it. It's from Numbers 15, 37 to 41. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them to make fringes on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue cord or blue thread on the fringe at each corner. You have the fringe so that when you see it, you will remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and not follow the lust of your own heart and your own eyes. So you shall remember and do all my commandments, and you shall be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So that's a great um, commandment, and it's written right in there that the fringe and the blue thread, the fringe on the corner with the blue thread is meant to remind them of the commandments, all of the Lord's commandments, and to do them. Um, but what does this mean on an inner meaning? Like it's got to have layers of meaning. We know that from Swedenborg. And, um, and there is some cool stuff in there. So first of all, it's their garments. And garments is a symbol of truth. Um, clothing means truth. And then love is on the inside. Um, and so uh, garments are truth. And then, and you wear them, you wear these true ideas. And I think that's this, that we can get caught up in this idea that we know what's true, um, that it just, you know, we have it, but they're being told you need to create 
add fringes to the corners of their garments. And <clears throat> fringe, you know, is like extra fabric. I don't know, I'm gonna add a picture here so you can see this is what it might look like. This is traditionally what a Jewish prayer shawl looks like. Um, and it has this blue thread on the fringe. Um, and the fringe is on the corner. And so the fringe is this outermost element of truth, I think. And the fact that it's on the corner, Swedenborg says corners are a symbol of strength and stability. That's why it said the Lord is, you know, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So this fringe is where the strength and stability is. Um, and that's a symbol of that outermost element is really the teachings that we get from the word or like just the Ten Commandments, um, that that's where, that's a symbol of us living according to those teachings that we, and that's why it says, um, look at it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. Because the truth is we do get forgetful and we think that we have this truth because we're so great, but we need to remember we're getting it from the, from the word, from these sacred texts. So then what is the blue thread? The fact that there's a blue thread there, um, Swedenborg says the blue is a symbol of the intelligence or I think the mindset that we get from an affection for spiritual love. Um, and that's a bit wordy, but what it means is spiritual love is a love to live according to the truth. And so I see this blue thread that exists out at that corner is something that is reconnecting us back to, to love that is what we're meant to be ultimately connecting to and living from. Um, and so the symbol of having this blue thread on the fringes on the corners is how when we are lost and feeling forgetful in life, we can go back to just what are those truths? You know, what are the Lord's core teachings that we learn from the word? And then we just live according to them. So just do the commandments and we can trust that that will then connect us back to the heavenly love that really exists inside of those teachings. A really interesting thing is that um, in the New Testament, in Luke, it doesn't spell it out quite this way, but there is this story of a woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years um, and she can't get a cure. And Jesus is walking in a crowd and she comes up and just reaches for the fringe of his garment. And so by calling it a fringe there, the fringe is on the corner of their garments. And so there must've been that blue thread there. So that's what she's touching and she gets healed immediately. And the Lord turns around and um, uh, says, who touched me? And she eventually reveals herself sort of, a, you know, timidly. And he says, your faith has made you well. And even if that story actually happened, it also is a, uh, it has an inner meaning to it. And I think that's it where if we just feel desperate, what we can do is go to those just basic commandments and start to align our lives with those core teachings that the Lord has given us through scripture. Um, and that, you know, it takes humility, but that that really is going to be starting us on this huge trajectory towards heavenly love and, and this transformed life. BD asks, does Swedenborg give any specific exercises or techniques to improve one's thinking or being? And that's a question that I've been asking myself for a long time. I mean, the, the primary goal in my pursuit of Swedenborg stuff is to find material that turns into useful techniques. I mean, that, that's what's been potent about Swedenborg stuff in the beginning. The problem is 
that he doesn't ever lay it out as techniques. He says all kinds of things about how to be and how to think, but he doesn't have a book like, here are the five things successful people do every day. He lays it out, it's all nestled and hidden in these little crevices of this giant theology that he lays out. So how do you take that and turn it into things you do, you do consistently and in a succinct way and that you can practice that? It's something that I've been trying to figure out. Uh, we've put some of my best guesses up on this channel, so I'm gonna do a little summarizing of other resources we have available Feel free to check out the full thing. There was a series we did called Spiritual Toolkit, and that had three entries in it, and each of those were taking Swedenborg's ideas and trying to apply them to, to as little psychological practices that you could do. We had the first one that was called How to Get Rid of Anxiety, and that was really a video about the potency of use. And Swedenborg says, in heaven, the primary joy is the joy of being of service. To people. This is coming right out of God into people. So that should be a pretty potent way to improve our thinking or our being. And I've found that the, the most consistent and potent cure for anxiety is to be doing constructive things. Just yesterday at work here at the Swedenborg Foundation, I was like, all right, I don't know if I felt super productive on Monday. I'm going to really get things done today. So I was, anytime I felt like, hmm, Maybe I should slack off right now. Instead, I was like, I'm going hard at the next thing. I felt great for the entire evening based on that. And Swedenborg would, I believe, support the idea that when I'm thinking about how can I accomplish things to help other people, that is a firewall that it's harder for hell, which is anxiety, to get through. So to, when you're in any kind of anxious situation, the more you can be not just, oh, I'm doing this stuff because I have to, but because you're thinking about the good that it does for the reason that it's helping the human race in whatever form, whether that's yourself tomorrow, whether that's your people who live with you, whether that's some larger project you're working on, doing that is potent. Then also, uh, there's a video we did called How to Detach from Fear. There's a phrase that Swedenborg uses in his Journal of Dreams. He says, it's, it's better for me when I cast my cares on the Lord like a little child. And that is a state of recognizing dependence on God. And that that is something that I think can actually get you out of a lot of um, emotional, intellectual mazes. This idea that there's an out, there's an outsourcing of the, the navigating of your life to the divine being. And to realize that every once in a while, to really focus on it, um, worked for Swedenborg and I think works uh, can work for us. Um, and we, what we do in that video is picture like a, a panel of people that is like the best people you can think of, like the smartest, most loving, most wise people. And imagine them seeing the problems in your life and just being like, I'm on it. You know? So doing something like that, realizing or, or taking advantage of the benefits of what Swedenborg says is the actual setup, which is that divine love and wisdom is really running the show despite the appearance. I feel like doing that on a regular basis is a good way to be. It also changes how you address problems. It changes your perspective on what's a big deal and what's not a big deal. The third one is called How to Stop Unwanted Thoughts. And it's a technique where you, Swedenborg says it over and over that it's important not to argue about what's true. And he says, in angels don't sit around and argue about what's true. And the way that I understand that is, if you have higher principles and there's thoughts and feelings coming in that are trying to take you away from those, don't get wrapped up in those conversations. What I'll do is I'll pick little phrases that have meaning. A lot of the time I'm picking them out of Swedenborg or the Old and New Testament 
and repeating those whenever it comes up. You know, like care for the morrow is the example I gave in that, which is saying that, you know, uh, as far as like life management stuff, as far as am I valuable or not valuable, I don't worry about that stuff. It's just a matter of principle. To have little phrases ready to, to kick back at the thoughts as they come in, rather than engage and kind of get into a debate about it, for me, super potent. So the, there's those, there's also, there was a show we did called Three Simple Ways to Love Everyone. And the point of that was to get, how do you get systematic about how you think about other people? You know, you're, you're talking about thinking and being, how do you think about how do you be around other people? Because Swedenborg does give very specific, counterintuitive instructions for how it is best to think about other people. And the three simple ways that we did in that video, and we, we explained them a lot more in the actual one hour clip, if you want to go take a look at it, but one, the first way we said is whenever you're encountering, encountering anyone, you say to yourself, I want this person to be happier than I am in a good way. Meaning you want them to have real happiness to a greater extent than you even have it. That's the way heaven is. That is heaven. Wishing for the happiness of others is heaven. And if you can make that a habit, even though we're not in heaven in our minds necessarily yet, but making that a habit, that's different than what you usually think of when you first see a person. You usually think, that person is in my way. That person looks funny. Something like that. But to think, I want this person to be happier than I am. What if that was a rule of engagement? And the second one is, this person is not whatever their attribute is. So you think about somebody's in a state, they're, they're angry or they are annoying or something. That's not who they are. Because Swedenborg says, heaven and hell flowing through all of us all the time. And to really cultivate seeing people like that would completely change uh, the way you ruminate on the, the value of others' existences. And then finally thinking about this person as a future, to imagine somebody, anybody you meet as a potential angel that, that continues to develop in skill and in particular usefulness forever, you just don't think of people as things that, that are that important. You just think of them as sort of disposable things that are at the periphery of your life. But people are, are eternal. That's what Sweetmore is saying. So I give those examples because those are some techniques of how could you do that every time. Overall, even with all the content we put out on the web, there's a lack of applicable techniques. And that's hopefully the next kind of steps we'll be taking here is to develop things that you can take, apply, and improve. I love it. Improve one's thinking and being. So that's what I have to say, BD. Thanks for the question. And if you, you, any of you out there have any insights or BD, if you have insights, let me know because I'm always looking for, yeah, how do you, how do you improve life? through this stuff, so thanks. Regina asked, what about people who have no or limited choices due to war, hunger, forced indoctrination? And Tear Dad asked, I still can't understand why some of us have so many privileges, why many are so poor that they don't have the energy for spiritual things. And we just released a show called Life Isn't Fair, or is it? Specifically about these kinds of questions, but I feel that behind all of these kinds of questions is a question that Harlan asked during one of our shows, which simply was, is God fair? And I thought that was a great question that I think is behind all these kinds of questions asking about uh, the injustice in the world and why God allows it. So I wanted to offer a few more thoughts about that. And sometimes people will say, now don't give me that free will stuff, which is understandable, but you really can't dismiss that. And for more discussion on that, uh, the importance of free will, the crucial importance, see our shows, Why Bad Things Happen, Spiritual Freedom, and What God Can't Do. But I want to move on to some other thoughts to offer um, in a addressing the question, is God fair? 
I want to offer the thought that when we're looking at trouble in the world, we're not looking at whether God is fair or not, but whether humanity is fair or not. And what we're directly seeing is not how God works, but how humanity reacts to God's gifts. Swedenborg learned that there are levels of consciousness and awareness. He learned that though there is endless variety in heaven, there are three major level, levels of heaven that relate to three major levels of awareness. Each level sees life from a certain perspective. Divine Love and Wisdom 202 says, There are three heavens in the spiritual world. The thoughts of angels of the highest or third heaven are thoughts of purposes. The thoughts of angels of the intermediate or second heaven are thoughts of means. And the thoughts of angels of the lowest or first heaven are thoughts of results. Thinking on the basis of means and purposes comes from a higher level. And then Divine Love and Wisdom 203 says, Since the deeper reaches of our minds are like the heavens as far as levels are concerned, their processes of perfection are similar. However, these processes are not perceptible to any of us as long as we are living in this world, since we are then on the lowest level, and the higher levels are unrecognizable from the lowest level. So he's saying that there are three levels of awareness, of, of perspective in the spiritual realm, and we have the potential for those levels in our minds too. And the three levels of perspective are from purposes, from means or causes, and from results. And the earthly point of view is on the level of results. So here's an analogy to think about. Uh, a child has a painful spot on her skin that's swollen and inflamed. All she knows is the results. It hurts, and that always feels unfair. Now, an adult can know to look for a cause of the pain and can find that there's a splinter in there. An adult can also know that the swelling and inflammation are brought about because there's this immune system that has a purpose to protect the body from threats. And as the immune system responds to the germs on the splinter, there's swelling and infection as the white blood cells die in the battle. So the result of the situation was pain and infection, but the cause was the splinter, and contained in the painful result is the protective actions of an immune system whose purpose is to heal the body. That infection can actually help drive out the cause eventually, like when you lance an infected wound and as the infection comes out, it carries out the splinter and germs too. Uh, but there's even a purpose to the pain that the child was experiencing. Um, the pain is an alert that something's wrong. Uh, a threat has invaded the body. Pain is calling attention to a problem that needs fixing. And getting that splinter out might hurt even more, <laughs> the process of it, but it's the only way to get it out and heal the underlying problem. So during earthly life, if we look around us and only look at painful results, we're looking at it from a very low perspective. In our bodies, we don't even realize how much disease our immune system is constantly preventing. Similarly, we don't realize how much suffering God is preventing at every moment. But when the system has been over-abused, disease can result. And uh, disease that is deep in the body, unseen, is much more dangerous than disease that is coming out on the surface. If disease is unknown and unseen, there is in, indeed an immune system working on it, but the person themselves might be continuing behavior that's actually feeding the disease and making it stronger. So when we see disorder and evil and suffering in the world, that means it is being driven to the surface and the divine immune system is working on driving it out. Uh, we have to be alerted to the problem so that we can think hard 
about how we might all be perpetuating the problem through our own thoughts and feelings, our own actions or lack of actions. We can be alerted about how we need to help each other see what needs to be stopped and take actions to stop it. So when looking at painful situations in the world, there's no relief or answers in staying stuck in the perspective of results. The results are there to wake us up, but we then have to move up mentally to the realm of causes and purposes. What are the causes? What are the evil purposes driving the harm? What are the good purposes that would confront them and then and need strengthening and support in order to succeed? And what each can each one of us do to help? The very reason we can even notice that things are unfair on the earthly level is because of divine inflow, which is always working to set things back into order. It's God who is alerting us to see injustice, that something's wrong, that behaviors and attitudes need to change. But just seeing it isn't enough. If, if we stay just seeing it and lamenting about it, nothing changes. We have to then take action. God's love and wisdom are always flowing in to set things back into order, but we human beings are the instruments through which the order must come about. We were created to be the instruments through which a willing consent to goodness, altruism, justice, compassion, and generosity toward everything in creation happens. And then the healing union of all of creation with the love of the creator can take place. To be upset about the symptoms without being willing to investigate the causes doesn't support the genuine divine cure or the divine healer who's constantly at work. Now, the dark side wants to inspire hopelessness, but I think things can only seem worse because our awareness of evil is getting better. Only because we're getting better at it, being able to know what a healthy way of life on earth should look like. Um, it used to be that slavery and oppression and abuse were widely practiced openly with no real opposition. It was widely accepted that conquerors got to abuse and exploit the conquered, that owners of women, servants, children, animals had a right to abuse them. Now it has to be done in sneakier ways because more of humanity is no longer willing to tolerate it and will look for ways to push back. That is huge progress. There's still a long way to go, but that's huge progress. And remember, too, that everything external that happens on Earth is temporary. Um, after the very temporary suffering of life on Earth, innocent victims will have all that pain washed away and healed in the afterlife, while willing perpetrators will suffer the consequences of their choices. So, also, we have to think about, um, to have evil suddenly all wiped out would not be as pleasant an experience as we might think it would be. Uh, we have to understand how connected we all are. Our own negative thoughts and feelings connect us to these same dark forces that inspire the worst outward evils. And to wipe out all evil suddenly would put us into anguish, way beyond physical hardship, because it would be ripping apart our spirits, basically. Swedenborg was shown the intricate complexity of, all, of it all, and what happens when angels or God come full force into a situation before people are spiritually evolved and purified. That would actually put our spirits into writhing agony because our own negativity would violently, violently react. The procedure has to follow a certain gradual order or humanity could not survive the process. Uh, it's like the divine has to work carefully like a surgeon removing a tumor that has become entangled with the essential organs. So yes, God is fair. I want everyone to 
be able to believe that. In the moment, of course, all we want is the painkillers and the quick fixes without a serious change of individual and collective lifestyle, which is a lot of hard work. But only a genuine cure will bring lasting happiness. So when the symptoms arrive, you know, bad things happening in the world, I believe there can be less anguish and delay if we can let our upset push us up into higher levels of mind to think about causes and purposes and from there ask God, how can I be part of the cure? Hey, so I'm jumping in here because as a sort of extra this week, we have um, some art that somebody sent us who's a fan of our show. And so in the past, we've had people send in graffiti art or music or um, videos that they've made. And we just love it when people get creative and uh, enthusiastic about these ideas that we share. And so this week we have a coloring book that uh, Trisha Lamb made for us and it's based on the inner meaning of the seven days of creation. So we're going to share that with you now. Sherry asks, which of Swedenborg's books provides greatest descriptions of his trips to the other side? Swedenborg gives a lot of descriptions of his trips to the other side, as this question asks. And he does it in kind of two different ways, which are interesting to me. One way that he talks about it is to kind of summarize and generalize he'll say, oh, there are temples in the other world, or there's a rainbow heaven, or, a, you know, they're sort of general in, in the present tense. But then he's also got situations where he's talking in the past tense in a narrative style. It's a specific account of a particular experience that he had. I went here, I saw this, I asked the person this, you know. And uh, so these are two different kinds of approaches that he has. In his first major published theological work, Secrets of Heaven, he has kind of a mixture of both. And at the beginning of the chapters, he'll have some spiritual experiences like that. Uh, but the work is 12 volumes long in current editions. It's going to be 15 volumes long in the NCE. It's a lot to wade through to get those spiritual experiences because there's also a lot of biblical exegesis in there. 
Uh, there are a number of Swedenborg's works where he's actually just talking about theology or what you might call doctrine or something, and, and uh, you hardly get any spiritual experiences. They're based on his spiritual experiences, but you don't hear much about them. So earlier on in his published works, you have these um, this kind of mixture of the kind of summarizing and the narrative, and it goes back and forth between those two. Uh, Heaven and Hell, uh, his most popular work, is largely of the summarizing kind. There's a lot of spiritual experiences in there, but there's also a lot of it's just, here's what the angels wear, this is how power works in the other world, or this is about the government there, and so on. And the more on that summary nature, but I find it very satisfying for just giving that overview. Uh, later in his works, like over the time that he was publishing, uh, toward the end, he started to include these long narrative accounts. In the older translations, these are called memorable relations. In the new century edition, we call them memorable occurrences. And he will put them at the end of a chapter. So it's interesting to me that in Apocalypse Revealed in 1766, he includes uh, on average one of these stories at the end of every chapter, 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. Uh, in Marriage Love in 1768, he includes on average two of these stories at the end of every chapter. And in True Christianity, that goes up to something like four or five at the end of every chapter. So True Christianity is one of my favorite works for giving these spiritual experiences. That's not all that's in there, uh, but at the end of every chapter, there are uh, spiritual experiences. At the end of the whole work, there's a whole riff about different nationalities in the spiritual world and so on. And uh, by one estimate, the work is about 30% spiritual experience. Now, that might not sound like very much, but there's lots of spiritual experience. It's a pretty long work. And so you get a substantial amount of spiritual experience in there. And I just love the variety of them. They're awesome. Other Planets is also a very interesting book. That is like wall-to-wall -wall spiritual experiences. Uh, they're all about his experiences with people from other planets. So that's pretty freaky. You know, for some people, it's like, well, I don't think there's anybody out there. So what is going on with this book? But I really enjoyed editing that work recently. Uh, for the New Century Edition um, because it has these amazing experiences. He's going out beyond the solar system and there's this great chasm with smoke rising up. And there's, you know, there's just a lot of cool experiences in there. Um, but I'd have to say those are published works like True Christianity, Other Planets are published works that have great spiritual experiences in them. Uh, but they, the one that takes the cake has to be the book that's titled Spiritual Experiences. I happen to have it right here. This is in four volumes. Now, this was not published during his lifetime. He did not see this through the press. He didn't prepare it for the press. And so, and it was actually written over a 20-year period. So it has a lot of random kind of stuff in here. You know, there's, there's a lot of very strange stuff at the beginning. He's even trying to figure out what's going on and, and what is this. So it's not the kind of sort of careful presentation that you get in other planets or true Christianity, but for sheer spiritual experiences, and it's pretty much 100% spiritual experiences in here. This is just amazing, amazing work. This has to take the cake, I think, for just, if you really want to read about what's going on, this is the mother load right here. So we have a question from Lori. 
Swedenborg speaks about angels, but what does he say specifically about guardian angels and their role in our lives? So Swedenborg doesn't really talk about guardian angels in the same way that we've come to understand them uh, culturally in recent years or how they've been understood in Christian contexts over time. As in an angel who is assigned to a person who then acts um, in an intercessory way to protect them. Uh, for Swedenborg, the connections that we have with angels are perhaps not quite as personal, but in a way they are actually even more intimate. So according to Swedenborg, of course, the earthly natural world is very closely connected to the spiritual world. And everything that is in this natural world arises from and has life from an inflow from the spiritual world. And, um, and one of the ways that this is manifested is through us, through our connection to spiritual beings. And uh, so we, each as people, are progressively connected. We are first connected to uh, spirits in the world of spirits, and then we are connected to angels, and finally to the Lord. And this is the way it is for everybody. This sort of connectiveness is embedded in God's design and structure for reality, and we wouldn't have any life at all without this connectiveness. Now, specifically, the way this plays out in our everyday life is that this connectedness is designed to preserve our uh, freedom of choice. So according to Swedenborg, we are all connected to four spirits. Two of them are um, evil spirits, and two of them are heavenly spirits, or angelic spirits. And Swedenborg calls these associate spirits. And uh, so one of each of them is connected to our will, right? The part of us that contains our desires and the things that we love. And so two of those spirits are going to flow into and try to affect and influence our desires and the things in our will. Uh, to each of them are also connected to our understanding. So that's the part of us that contains our concepts and the ways we think about things. So one of each of those spirits is going to be flowing into and affecting and influencing our understanding. And so this connection is happening all the time, and um, the connection, therefore, to both heaven and hell places us in a balance, and we get to choose in freedom uh, how we're going to respond to these different sets of influence. So this is happening, as I said, all the time, but Swedenborg talks specifically about how it plays out in spiritual temptation, which he defines as a time when we might be experiencing a, a conflict or a dilemma that we feel anxious or uncomfortable about that's manifesting in our conscience. And so when we're experiencing that, we're also experiencing a kind of conflict between these two sets of spirits. The evil spirits are trying to force their influence upon our desires and our thoughts, and the angelic spirits are defending us. They are also influencing our desires and thoughts, but in a way that tries to engender in us hope and trust, in a way that tries to strengthen us, um, and a way that helps us to recognize our own freedom and to make the choice to lean into uh, the good things of love. And uh, so this kind of defense certainly plays out with intensity during spiritual temptation, but it's also happening 
all the time. Swedenborg puts it this way. He says that uh, angels are defending us and, and, uh, and helping us in every instant and every fraction of an instant. So that seems like a really beautiful and intimate way to be present with us. What's an important thing to understand, though, about this presence is Swedenborg is really clear that these associate spirits are not aware of their presence or connection to us. And this is for the sake of protection. Now, angelic spirits, of course, would never try to force their influence upon us. Our freedom is important to them. They would only want to influence, influence us in ways that actually support our freedom of choice and support our own growth into angelic beings ourselves. The evil spirits, though, of course, they wouldn't care about that. Their only aim would be to destroy us in our spiritual life. So they are not allowed to have any awareness of their connection to us for our own protection. So rather, instead of a kind of conscious connection, what we have is a connectivity that is basically according to the principle of connectiveness in heaven itself, and that's the affinity of love. Connection according to the quality and the things that we love. And so therefore, we draw closer or further away from our various associate spirits according to the things that we are thinking and loving and doing in our life. And therefore, it is possible for our associate spirits to change um, over time as our own affections change. So for Swedenborg, the, the way he understands angels being connected and with us, present with us, it's definitely more of a naturalized phenomenon than perhaps the way guardian angels are understood uh, in other contexts. But it's also an incredibly important phenomenon to um, his way of understanding how uh, the whole of reality is structured. Because angels are certainly with us to be able to protect us, but it's not only that. They are the means by which we have life, the means by which we are connected to heaven, and the means by which we are able to have spiritual freedom. So John asks, Evil spirits may have been souls like us. Can we forgive them as Jesus would? Now, John, that's a deep question, man, so I'm gonna give you a deep answer, and this is just how I see it. If forgiveness becomes the posture by which we interact in the world, we're living in harmony with Christ. This goes for every interaction, whether it be human to human or something else, like evil spirits. After all, God is constantly forgiving us. So let's first dive into that. What is God's forgiveness? And how does his forgiveness work? Perhaps that can create a sound model for us to follow, even with evil spirits. Okay, so here it is straight to the point. There is nothing we can think or do that will invalidate God's love and forgiveness. Our actions have no bearing on God's forgiveness for our sins. His forgiveness is unfaltering. That being said, we can either receive or deny God's constant forgiveness by how we live our lives. So if we create a, a harmony with love via you know, faith and charity, living by principles that teach us to be good people and, and grow, uh, serving the neighbor and serving the Lord, that's when we open ourselves up to forgiveness. But we also have the choice. You know, the Lord always gives us a choice to embrace him, to embrace love, or to go a different path to live more an ego-driven life or something that is 
intensely materialistic. There, there are options that he gives us. And so depending on what we choose, we can embrace his forgiveness or not. So John, I think it has less to do, my answer has less to do with a specific example of forgiving an evil spirit and more to do with one, buying into the system, buying into what forgiveness is, what it does, and how you grow from it. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to give an example from the New Testament, which honestly is littered with uh, ideas about forgiveness that the Lord talks about. So here's one I took from Matthew 18. It's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And it's a small snippet, but I think it provides a really concise view of what we are to do with forgiveness. So here we are with Peter talking to the Lord. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. This is a really important concept because here we have Peter talking about this idea of uh, a limit to forgiveness. And I wanna give you some insight here. The correspondence of the number seven is infinite. Uh, so here we have the Lord using 70 times seven. So this idea of 70 times infinity for the amount of times that we're to practice forgiveness. And so right here we have the Lord saying clearly, forgiveness needs to be the means or the compass point by which you live your life and see relationships, see each other, see your faith. So why is forgiveness such a consistent theme in the Bible? Well, here's what I got for you. I just wanna break down what happens when we choose not to forgive. And that might provide an answer to why you see forgiveness show up so many times in the Bible. When we don't forgive, say someone hurts us and we experience this singular moment of pain, we actually can create an ecosystem inside of ourselves that allows that pain to flourish and show up in many ways, whether it's anger or contempt, hatred, vengeance. And if you notice all of those variables, they're actually characteristics of hell. They're, they're the ideas that keep us shackled and, uh, and tormented uh, in the natural world. And they actually create a prison for us unless we release that unless we buy into the system of love that the Lord is constantly seeking for us to enter into. And we do that by forgiveness. Forgiveness has less to do with the person that hurt you, and it has actually everything to do with your ability and your free choice to find healing, to live a life aligned with that love and forgiveness flowing down from the Lord, constantly wanting to enter into a relationship with you. So John, I just, I'm thinking here about you and I, I think my answer, as you, as you might know, has less to do with the singular example of whether or not we should forgive an evil spirit, but more so to do with if forgiveness, if you let it become the mode by which you're operating, then the answer is yes to all of, all of the above. It's yes to uh, people, to evil spirits, uh, even to yourself. So I hope that helps, uh, just some ideas about forgiveness. And uh, uh, yeah, I wish you well, my friend. I was given the chance to answer a question from a person who identifies himself as Marine Corps. Here's the question. How can someone gain heavenly rewards? Well, I believe that this person is referring to 
the New Testament, where Jesus, in several different books, has promised people that they will have a heavenly reward if they do good works. In the book of Matthew, we find such a reference in Luke and in Revelation, as well as other places. And if you think about it, this is very often the the case where Jesus is saying, you may not see it now, but you will in the future. And there really is a heaven. And that's where you will have good things happen to you. Well, I'd like to share with you something that I have learned when I studied the writings of Swedenborg, particularly in the book of Arcana Celestia or Heavenly Secrets, number 3688. And it inspired me to write my own book, which is this book on altruism. And I'm going to just give you a summary of what it says in that number from the writings, but I'll be putting it in my own language. What's interesting is that Swedenborg talks about how there is an opportunity for people to have a spiritual progression or a regeneration as we become more sophisticated in our wisdom and in our discerning heart. And at first, he says, a child or a rather simple person will be at the lowest level. And this is where somebody is simply giving to others from their heart so that they get a reward in heaven, just like it says in the Bible. But Swedenborg tells us that we can go further in our progression of our spirituality. The next level is when somebody gives to anybody who is in distress with no distinction about whether the receiver will use the contributions for good or ill. For instance, if you were to walk through New York City with a bunch of $100 bills and just hand them out one at a time to anybody you see with no thought or even wondering about whether or not the person will use them for weapons or will they use them for food for their family, then you're not really using much discernment. You just see, oh, that person's in distress. Here's a hundred bucks. So that's the second level. Getting a little more enlightened, a little more spiritual is the third level. And this is where Swedenborg tells us that a person would be given to people that are thought to be upright, but they're groups of people. For instance, it might be the group of people who run the Red Cross. Or you might give your time to the local uh, charitable organization that collects food for people who need it. Or you might give money to the local ballet. So you look at groups of people, you like what they're doing, and you give to your those organizations. Now, each level, as you move along in your spiritual development, hopefully you're caring less and less about rewards for yourself and more and more about doing a good thing. Now, the final stage that Swedenborg talks about is where you are searching for what is good in an individual and support that component. You see the Lord within that person, and then you choose to be altruistic or supportive to that person. If this is done with a full heart and an acknowledgement that all goodness comes from the Lord, then you are regenerating. And what's interesting is that we are also told that when we die, we arrive in the world of spirits and we are gravitated toward a group of people who have similar loves that we have. And that is like a reward in the sense that you have an opportunity to serve other folks in heaven, and you get to do it with people who are kindred spirits to you. So it's not so much a reward in the sense that you get to passively just sit there and hold your reward, but you get an opportunity to be useful with like-minded spirits. Harlan asks, was Swedenborg ever self-critical? And I want to say that you can think of being self-critical in a couple of different ways, and I'll try to address each of those First of all, I think of self-critical as the emotional condition of being chronically um, wounded at your own insufficiency. 
I wish I was cooler. I wish more people liked me. Oh, I'm no good at this. I have these character flaws. You know, that sort of narrative that we run. That's one way you could look at self-critical. The other way is, do you assess your own uh, makeup, your actions, the way you think about things? And with a critical eye, not like a disparaging one, but is this really good? Where could I improve? That kind of, So I sort of see like positive self-critical and then negative self-critical. Um, I would say that, that hell is trying to get you to be negatively self-critical and positive self-criticism is the foundation for everything. I mean, it's, it's the way we grow and change. I would want to focus on... So Swedenborg, I would say every, all of his criticism that you hear in his writings is in this second category of positive self-criticism, but it sounds a lot like negative self-criticism, and I, that takes us into a little discussion of what all... Uh, what what um what the value of self-criticism can be in the first place. So in the Journal of Dreams, throughout Swedenborg's regeneration process that he describes there, he's very self-critical because he's admitting that he was a stuck-up guy, that he thought he was better than everyone else. He talks about um, having experiences where they're saying, talking about some book in anatomy, and he's like, oh, they better mention that mine's better than that book, that he knows that he is uh, narcissistic because he was very successful. And so he, he wants to be the best all the time. And that really causes problems for him when he's trying to grow spiritually. He sees these dogs in his visions that are representative of his own pride and that's sort of his primary nemesis as he goes through this. So, and you'll find a lot of passages in the Journal of Dreams where he's just talking about how miserable of a sinner he is, and just feeling totally unworthy. Uh, I, I am morally not a good person, so it's just amazing that God still likes me, even though uh, I am who I am. So you'll find all that, but uh, I don't see that as negative self-criticism, because it's part of this coming into this great joy that he finds. Um, and he will later take shots at his own former beliefs. Like he will, in his writing, say, some people think this ridiculous thing. And it's the thing he used to write in his previous works before he had this spiritual experience. So he's no stranger to, to that kind of self-criticism. But I don't think that it's really bad, that it's a bad mode. Um, I think it's actually liberating. And this is how I see it. Once I was at a I only have like three or four stories to tell, so I've probably told this one before. But once I was at a release party for one of the new century edition translations of Swedenborg's works. And Dr. Jonathan Rose, who you may have seen on this channel, was reading a part of it. And he wrote this part that Swedenborg had written as like really self-deprecating. Like uh, we human beings are the, we are the worst scum. We are nothing but evil, whatever, I'm paraphrasing. But it was pretty harsh directed at the self. And there was people in the audience who didn't really like that. And they said, well, I, or not that they were, angry about it, but they were just struggling with how is this any good? Isn't this kind of like old school religion and guilt and that kind of thing? I loved it. And th the reason I did is because I've come through through a long study of Swedenborg's works, realized the freedom in not having to maintain this sense of, oh, do I have value or not? Um, that you can know that we have naturally, we have inclinations to be a jerk, like just the way that I'll do snap judgment thinking about people, the way that I'll favor myself in my own mind. I can tell that it's just not that great a thing, but it's not really about how good am I or how good am I not. It's about that it wouldn't matter anyway, because the, the course of action is 
you're growing closer and closer to heaven. And this is goodness and truth from the only source of goodness and truth, which is the divine coming into you and continuing to perfect you and flushing out the old, bringing in the new. So whatever I am, wherever I am now, uh, I'm going to get so much better. And not from me, not from Curtis, but from God. And that's how everybody's going to do it. Because I spent a long time, and I'm still on it, but throughout my teenage years and on this treadmill of like, Oh, am I, I'm, I'm not cool, I'm really cool, I'm not cool, I'm in the middle, I'm cool, I'm not cool. Um, and this sort of this, this merry-go-round of, uh, am I good? And, but that's not, never, I never was like fully happy for an extended period of time. But the more you kind of um, give up on, am I better or worse than people, that there's no such thing as better or worse, that there's just progress and that God makes people as they need to be and leads our lives as they need to be for the common good in the end, that's what we really care about is this, uh, as I talked about um, in the other question uh, that, that I'm either already answered or I'm going to answer <laughs> uh, about the, the importance of, of use and helping, that that's it. But what can we get done? Not how good do each of us look or how good are each of us at doing it? That's heaven. And I can just tell based on the little slices that I've had that it's much better. So self-criticism is cool if it's getting us towards that. No, you know, we don't want, we, we want to be able to praise people, make them feel great. You can say things about yourself to feel good, but just realize, or I found, I found extreme comfort in realizing that that's not the game. It's not about how many points do you have, because we're all going to get infinite points down the road. It's really about, let's, the, about coming into the, the absolute bliss of, let's all work on this together and there's no ego. And I've only felt little flashes of it, but I want to go in that direction. So that, those are my thoughts on Swedenborg, self-criticism, etc. All right. Thank you very much, Other Curtis. That's our show for this week. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please like and subscribe. That matters. That helps get us out there. And take a second to click that little bell and get your notification setting on because otherwise you won't know when we put out videos if you want to support the channel make this whole thing possible consider joining us on patreon that is where you can just for a dollar an episode be part of the the engine that runs the whole thing and as a thank you we give you special behind the scenes content this week we have the extended didn't make the cut writers meeting about all the stuff from our last show on the fairness of life and sensory substitution we talk about the stuff that was so cool but we couldn't quite find a place for it so fascinating swedenborg ideas in there and next week we're going to be back at it we're actually going to be having a live community chat on monday at eight o'clock this is a chance for all you guys to get to weigh in give input we can ask ask and answer some more questions that we can also i want to hear from you what does the whole thing mean to you as a chance for us to all get together hang out uh, and party so hopefully you can join us then thanks for watching tonight swedenborg and life is amy aquarola morgan beard curtis childs karen childs matthew childs alexa cole john Connolly, cara dom chris dunn Stuart farmer ben keys reed mccardle chelsea odner Jonathan Rose, Shiloh Silverman, and Shada Sullivan.